Awesome. Thank you, Joan and Rochella and Lauren and Maria. Uh, can we give Lauren and Maria uh, a hand and thank you for sharing? Great to, great to hear those updates, and just to tie it back to the e-news piece that was you heard in announcements, uh, you will you'll see the links to these missionaries and their different newsletters and ways that you can uh, support them even in those emails. And so if you're uh, wondering how do I stay in the loop of communication uh, with the SunWest uh, ministry partners, these missionaries, uh, that's one way to do it. Uh, just pay attention to those weekly e-news, and uh, you can sign up for those new newsletters through that. Uh, good morning. It's good to be, be with you. If you don't know me, my name is Matt. I'm the lead pastor here at SunWest, and we are in uh, week four here of doing a series on the book of Revelation. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, I don't know if you're having fun, but I'm having fun. Uh, and we are going to do this for 13 weeks. And we're going to take a little bit of a break uh, coming up here for about a month uh, during the Mexico trip and the Easter weekends and and some of those things, and then we'll finish it up in spring. Uh, But why are we doing this? Why are we spending this much time looking at this uh, particular book, uh, for many a peculiar book? Uh, And uh, and I'll tell you the two main reasons why we're doing this. Uh, Because during the pandemic, um, you know, there's a whole bunch of ideas and theories about what's happening in the world, and I have no interest in getting into those theories. So just so you know, we haven't talked about those on Sundays, and we won't, because uh, that's not really what we're about. But uh, ironically, uh, many uh, Christians and followers of Jesus became about a lot of particular ideas and specific ideas of what were going on, uh, from the worldwide pandemic to and epidemics to vaccines to, war, to wars and what's happening in the economy, and then tying a lot of these worldly events to uh, the Bible, uh, particularly the book of Revelation, uh, and then using the Bible to prop up their own ideas or agendas or political viewpoints uh, of what is happening in the world. Uh, that is actually what's called, what theologians call eisegesis, which means we read our own views into the Bible and we actually use the Bible to support our views. Uh, the opposite of that would be exegesis, where we use the Bible actually to form our views of how we see the world. Uh, and so one of the reasons I wanted to deal with this book was uh, because Revelation, for whatever reason, um, because it's, maybe it's so symbolic and there's, uh, there, there's so much in there, uh, becomes a way that many Christians throughout history have done eisegesis where they've taken the book and they've taken a particular idea that they think, and then they use the Bible as a way to support their own ideas. Uh, and that can be very, very dangerous. Uh, it can be manipulative, and uh, for, especially in a book like Revelation, where it, it's really hard to discern what it's talking about, uh, then we're more easily to think, okay, maybe I got this wrong, and maybe this is right. Um, and so we have to think carefully about how we read this book. Uh, and the second reason we're doing it is because I think when we actually do exegesis, when we actually read what Jesus is telling us through his revelation, through his apocalypse, uh, it actually gives us clarity on the world the way it is. Uh, Maybe not the way some people think, uh, but it it tells us where Jesus is currently, what he's doing, and how we ought to live in the current world. Uh, And so those are two of the main reasons why we decided to tackle uh, this book. And again, this book was written by a guy named John, uh, and he was on the island of Patmos because he was uh, proclaiming that Jesus was king. He was living as if Jesus was king in a world where Caesar was king. He was worshiping Jesus in a world where the citizens were worshiping Caesar. So he refused uh, to live the way uh, that the Roman Empire was requiring him to live, and that got him into trouble. 
And so they put him in exile on the island of Patmos, uh, just off the the coast of Turkey, uh, and he was addressing uh, the Christians living in that time in the first century, the end of the first century, around 96 AD, uh, that were living under this Roman Empire. So many Christians under this pressure were responding in different ways. Uh, as we talked about the last couple of weeks, some were assimilating into culture, some were trying to compromise and please both Caesar and the church, uh, and there was other churches that were holding fast to uh, their conviction that Jesus was Lord and they were suffering the consequences because of that conviction. And so John writes to them, uh, trying to encourage them and give them an apocalypse uh, of what is actually true. Now, the the word apocalypse we use in our time uh, to describe something cataclysmic, some, uh, you know, worldwide level of destruction. Um, But that's not actually what the word means. The word, again, means the revealing, uh, the unboxing or the unveiling, something that was, was previously hidden that we couldn't see. And now we can see it. And when we actually read the apocalypse, we we discover it's a good news apocalypse. Um, And so who's excited about the apocalypse? Anybody? Few people. Um, I hope as we go through this book that you are excited about the apocalypse. Uh, that the, the idea of a cop, the apocalypse will be renewed for you, that you'll maybe start to use the word in a different way. When I use the word throughout the series, I'm going to use it in the way that it was intended to be used. Uh, and, and the Greek word literally describes the unveiling. And what do we see when John gives us the apocalypse, when he unveils what is actually happening? We see that Jesus is on the throne. We see that God actually has a plan. Uh, we, we see that no matter what's going on in our world and the chaos and the war and the uh, you know, nations fighting against nations, people fighting against people, and even the battle over ideas and culture, whatever's happening in our world, there's more that's going on than meets the eye. There's more than what we see. And so John invites us over and over again throughout the book to look. Uh, the main commandment in the book uh, of Revelation is to look. To look and to see with your spiritual eyes that what's happening in the physical realm isn't all that is actually happening. And so we are unpacking this apocalypse, the unveiling. Uh, and we could uh, maybe describe it like putting on a set of uh, sunglasses. I wear my sunglasses at night. Um, and so, so this, this particular set of sunglasses... Uh, are a set of mountain biking sunglasses, actually my son's sunglasses, and, and they, they have a particular type of lenses, trail prism lenses they're called, um, hashtag Oakley, and uh, I'm sponsored, no, actually I'm not, but the, so when, when these sunglasses are worn when you're out on the trail, they're actually designed uh, to bring out certain colors and textures. Uh, and so they're different than glasses you might wear, you know, snowboarding or in the snow, uh, or you might wear driving. Uh, these are designed to bring out greens and browns. And, and when you wear them, you can actually uh, see the trail and the way the trail moves and, and see the, the different textures. Uh, so you can kind of see where to get grip on your tires. And that's the intention of these sunglasses, that when you put them on, you see the world in a way that you couldn't see them with your other set of eyes or glasses that you had on. Uh, This is what John is trying to do for us. What Jesus is trying to do through John uh, is help us to see something in the world that we previously didn't notice. And so the question is, will you look? Will you put on the glasses that Jesus is giving you and say, I'm going to choose to look at the world through these lenses? And no matter what people are saying, no matter what's happening, I am going to choose to see the world through this apocalypse. 
So as we get into Revelation again, uh, to remind us that there's nothing new in the book of Revelation that we haven't already learned elsewhere in the Bible. This is so critical. Many people think they're going to the book of Revelation to get some new revelation that hasn't already been uh, talked about at some other point in Scripture. Revelation it uses about 500 allusions and references to the Old Testament. It is retelling us the story of God. We re-understand in a new way through different symbols and metaphors um, what the truth is uh, practically about what the Bible has already said uh, previously to the book of Revelation. Uh, Revelation chapters 4 and 5, which we're getting into today, uh, more than any other part of the book of Revelation tells us uh, how to read and understand the book and also how to understand the world. Uh, Revelation 4 and 5, in my opinion, are the glasses that we ought to put on to understand history, to understand how to read this book and our place and what God is doing in the world. Uh, I think this is the most important sermon in the entire series. I know it's coming early, week four. You're like, I don't have to come back for the next nine weeks. Uh, the, but I think this is the most important cha- chapters of the book of Re- Revelation. If we don't get what's happening in chapters 4 and 5, we will not understand what is happening in the rest of the book. In fact, if this uh, revelation, this apocalypse that happens in chapters 4 and 5 doesn't seep deep into our hearts and souls, we will misinterpret and understand the entire rest of the book. So, we want to see what John sees. We want to have an apocalypse and an unveiling. And the, the, even the idea behind apocalyptic literature, which is part of what this is, uh, the, the point of apocalyptic literature is to set the present moment in light of the unseen realities of the future. Yes. Uh, but even more importantly and more primarily, it's to set the present moment in light of the unseen realities of the present. This book is not primarily about the future. It's actually about the now. There's, a, there's some future elements that we'll get into later, particularly when we get to the end of the book of Revelation. Uh, but the main emphasis of the book of Revelation is where is God now? What is God doing now? Uh, it's helping us to see the present moment in light of the unseen realities of the present. Uh, and before we get into the particular text this week, uh, apocalyptic literature, again, uses images, uses numbers as symbols. Uh, there's more uh, apocalyptic literature outside of the book of Revelation that was common in that culture at that time. And this is part of the way they wrote this literature. Uh, and so numbers and colors and images, these are all symbols that were telling us that, about something that is true. Just because they're symbols doesn't mean it's not true. It just means how they're true might be different than how we would read them, literally. Uh, and so when we look at the symbolic values of numbers in the book of Revelation, seven means completeness or perfection. Four is universal. It refers to creation. Uh, when you think of like the four corners of the earth, the four winds of the earth, uh, what is earthly? That's how the number four is used. Number six is symbolic of humanity, of incompleteness, right? It's less than seven. It's, it's fallibility. It's imperfection. Uh, the number 666, you'll have to wait to find out. Um, I can't, you know, you got There's a lot of weeks left, so you got to come back for something. Uh, but I'll tell you what, this one and some of the others, you might be able to start to figure out what they mean even before we talk about it if you start to read Revelation through these lenses. Uh, number 12, the people of God in their fullness. 
24, the fullness of the people of God times two. We're going to look at those numbers even today. Uh, 1,000 uh, or multiples of thousands. It's a large number, an immensity, and 144,000. Go back and see the note on 666. We'll talk about that one uh, later as well. Um, and so these, this is important as we start to read the book. You're going to see these numbers pop up and repeat, and you're going to see them used in different ways. But keep in mind what they're meaning and how they're being used uh, in the text. So Revelation chapter 4. Uh, so John finishes writing the letters to the seven churches, which we looked at the last couple of weeks. And he begins um, with, uh, with the phrase, Then I looked. And so this idea in 4 verse 1 and in 4 verse 2, uh, the idea of looking or beholding, some translations miss this, and the, the translation we're using actually does. Uh, it is, is actually in the imperative mode, mood. It's like a, it's like a command, uh, behold or look, look at this thing. Uh, and so this is the most used commandment in the book of Revelation, as I've mentioned before. Uh, this is the most used commandment. Uh, look, uh, the second uh, most used commandment in the book of Re- Revelation is fear not. Uh, and what John is helping us to see as we read through the book is that you can't obey the second commandment without obeying the first commandment. You can't live a life outside of fear without actually seeing what Jesus wants you to see. The key of living without, without fear is actually experiencing the apocalypse of the good news, the gospel. And so John tells us to look. I saw a door standing open in heaven And the same voice I had heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. Um, The word open, and I don't want to get too technical, but the word open is used four times in the book of Revelation. Every time it's used, it opens a new scene uh, that's happening in the book, a different scene of metaphors and pictures. And and so this is the second time it's used. uh, And so there's a new scene that's about to happen here. Uh, So he sees something new in heaven. Uh, that he hasn't seen before. And the word heaven in, in the Bible is not used to describe a place that's far away, even though that's how often we think about it. Heaven is not some place far away. He- heaven is the realm of God's reign. Heaven is actually very close. Heaven and earth are actually side by side. All around is ordinarily not visible, not audible, not touchable, but very close at hand. And the door to that heaven is open and John is seeing this reality that's beyond the earthly reality that is around him. So he, uh, the voice said, come up here and I will show you what must happen after this. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Referred to 47 times, it's referred to in some form 77 times. The rest of chapter 4, we are brought into this place to see what John sees. And we see what John sees, which is a worship service that is already in progress. We see the Almighty Himself that is sitting on the throne. And we're not going to read the whole text, but you can read it on your own. But what we see when the heavens are open and John looks in and he sees this new thing is that the Almighty is on the throne. Of those 24 thrones around this throne, there's 24 elders around the throne, uh, and we go back to the number of 24 and the number 12. 
what is the number 24? Well, most scholars agree that the 24 is a representation of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, the church, the people of God before Christ came and after the death and resurrection of Christ. They represent the redeemed people of God throughout history. And each of them have thrones. Um, And so when we see that there's 24 thrones and 24 elders, does it mean that they're competing for authority and rulership with the Almighty that's in the center on his throne? No, it means that they are co-heirs. They are reigning with the one on the throne. And we read in the text that they cast down their crowns before the, the throne in the center, which, which tells us their posture. They're not competing for the throne. They're actually laying down their rights. They're laying down their identity. The, 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 the center of the throne, the Almighty, is the center of their identity. The single most reliable indication that our vision is clear and that we're seeing things appropriately is that we become a worshiping people. What's happening around the throne is worship. The 24 elders are worshiping. The 24 elders are laying down uh, whatever they have that's of value and putting it on the ground, prostrate before God, uh, which is a symbolic act of saying that Jesus is the center uh, of the world and the universe. I'm getting ahead of myself. At this point, what John sees is the Almighty. The Almighty is the center uh, of the universe. So we've got 24 thrones, 24 elders. Uh, we have seven uh, torches, seven uh, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God. And just remember the number seven means what? Completeness. Okay, you guys are getting it. The fullness of God. The, the God's spirit is fully there. Um, the seven spirits of God mean the spirit of God completely there, completely available, completely complete. Heaven is filled with God. This is what John sees. And he also sees a sea of glass. And the sea throughout the biblical story represents the forces that oppose the will of God. The sea represents the things that seek to overcome, undo, destroy what God is trying to do. It represents chaos. If you think back to the uh, creation story, that uh, in the beginning, the, the, the creation was chaos and God was bringing order out of chaos. The water in the creation story represents chaos and God separates the water from the land and brings structure. Uh, when you think of Exodus, right, he brings his people through what? The flood or the, the Red Sea. When you think of Noah, Right, Noah, uh, the, the floods was this judgment and brought destruction upon, uh, upon the earth. Uh, and we learn from Revelation 13 that it, it, it's the sea, uh, the, the, one of the beasts actually comes out of the sea, out of the chaos. Uh, and so in this open picture of heaven, we see that the, gla- the sea is glass. There's no waves. The people in John's day feared the sea. It represented, again, the forces of chaos that were trying to undo what God was doing. John wants us to know that the chaos won't win. And the other thing that we see that we, we won't completely unpack is that behind the throne that John is seeing, uh, there is a rainbow, which is the promise that God gave to his people uh, in Noah's time that he was never going to destroy or flood the earth again. So there's a sea of glass and there's a rainbow. God is bringing order. He's bringing peace. This is what John sees when he looks into heaven. Um, and, and not to go too far back down, down the road, but in, in Revelation 21, uh, there is no sea in the new heavens and the new earth. That doesn't mean that there's no water, but what John is saying, that all threat to what God is doing in the world is gone. All chaos is gone. 
Uh, and so that's where, that's where we get to. Uh, John also sees four living beings in Revelation chapter 4. Uh, and, these, uh, and it says that the, around the throne were these four living beings, each covered with eyes, front and back. The first of these living beings was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a human face. And the fourth was like an eagle in flight. Uh, and you're like, whoa, what's happening? Uh, so there's lots of things going on here. There's references uh, that you see there to Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1, Daniel 7. Uh, similar beasts are described uh, in, the, in those uh, places of literature. Uh, and again, there's four of them, and four represents what? It's a new number. Uh, the, the, the world, the creation. Uh, yep, so the, the earth, uh, so the four corners of the earth, the four winds of the earth, right? And so there's four living creatures. Uh, in fact, there's a rabbi in AD 30 that said um, that uh, the mightiest among the birds is the eagle, the mightiest among the domestic animals is the ox, the mightiest among the wild lion, or the animals is the lion, the mightiest of them all is man. This is what one of the rabbis said in the 300 AD. Um, and so there's, there's general consensus among scholars that what's, what's being symbolized here with these four creatures is all of creation. Uh, through the symbols uh, themselves, through the number of the, themselves, that we see that all of creation uh, is worshiping God. The whole scope of creation made by God and for God is worshiping God. So you see that in 4.6? Yeah. Um, and uh, in Revelation 5.1, so we get to the book, uh, the, the chapter 5, which is why I want to spend uh, the majority of our time here. And so then John sees a scroll. And the scroll uh, is clearly a book of unparalleled importance. And there's writing on the outside and the inside. And so there's so much information on the scroll. The, the scroll is overflowing. It's the scroll of history. It contains God's plan for establishing God's rule in the earth. It contains God's plan for bringing heaven to earth, to, to fulfilling the purpose of creation. It contains the meaning of history, of world history, of your history, of my history. All of this is wrapped up in the scroll. Uh, uh, and the scroll is sealed with seven seals. Uh, and so at that time, if you're familiar, these scrolls were, were sealed with wax, right? So they put wax on them, and then the person uh, that was sealing them would have a sig- signature ring that they would put and press onto the, racks, uh, onto the wax. And there's seven of these seals. Again, seven being complete. So this thing is completely sealed. And it's perfect. The perfection of history, the completeness of history is wrapped up in this this scroll. And so he sees the scroll. Uh, There's writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. And then I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals on the scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on, under the earth was able to open it, uh, open the scroll and read it. So John hears this angel shouting, who's worthy to open the scroll? And what he finds out is that there's no one in all of history, in all of creation, that can open the scroll. There's no one that can reveal God's plan for the earth. There's no one that can bring history to its conclusion. To its conclusion. There's no one who can take the shambles of chaos and destruction and bring out of it beauty and wholeness. No one. And so when he realized there was no one, it says he began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. John weeps bitterly. John had a longing for the scroll to be opened up. John is longing for God to bring about what God had in mind. John looks at the chaos in the world around him and says, 
God, where are you? What are you doing? What's going to happen? We need you to show up and bring history to where you intended it to go. We need heaven to invade earth. And he realizes that there's nobody that can do that. There's no one that can bring that about, and so he weeps. And I just wonder if we long for that the way that John does. John longs for it so much that he weeps at the idea of this not happening. For people to be redeemed. For history to be rewritten. For wars to be stopped. For the kingdom of heaven to invade earth. Do we long for it the way that John does? John longs for it so much that when he finds out that there's no one that can open the scroll, he begins to weep bitterly. So he's weeping. But one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping. Uh, And so we got to stop here quickly because uh, what John, what happens here is that John hears, everybody said, say hears, hears. This is important. John hears an elder speak to him. Stop weeping. And the elder says, what? Look, which is the most common commandment in the book of the apocalypse. Look, you're not seeing it all. You're not seeing the whole picture. Look, look again. The line of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. So John, what he hears, an elder say to him, look. That's what he hears. He hears an elder describe to him that there is one that can open the scroll. It's the lion, the tribe of Judah. That's what he Hears. And the lion was a classic description of the messianic king who would bring about the kingdom of God, who would bring heaven to earth, who would bring history forward in the way that God intended. The lion describes this Messiah that the people of God were anticipating to come and deliver them. Both the line of Judah, Judah and the root of David that's uh, being referred to here are, are references that go back to the Old Testament. Um, the line of Judah comes from Genesis 49, all the way at the beginning of the Bible, um, and which describes uh, one of the, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel, one of the sons of Israel, of Jacob. And it says, Judah, my son, son, is a lion that has finished eating its prey. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah and the ruler's staff from his descendants until the coming of the one whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honor. So the lion of Judah is a reference to this messianic uh, picture that the people of God had been hoping for for all of history. When history was going through its twists and turns and they were going through oppression and they were in the wilderness and they were wondering, where, God, are you? They were waiting and waiting and waiting for the line of Judah to show up, who was going to come from the family line of David, um, which is the second thing that's referred to in, that, in Revelation. Uh, and so this comes from Isaiah 11, uh, chapter 1. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. So this Messiah, this lion, was going to be in the kingly line of David. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. This is what John hears. So John is weeping bitterly. 
And the elder tells him this. He said, don't weep. There's actually one who can open the scroll. There's one who's victorious. The lion, the one from the tribe of Judah. And so John hears this, and then John turns. And again, this is, I believe, the most critical point in the entire book of Revelation. John hears this, and he turns. And what does John see? What John sees is a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered. John expects a lion, but John sees a lamb. The lion, the almighty God, overcomes by being a lamb. The lion does not get to the throne by acting like a lion. The secret of history, which no one had discovered on their own, the secret in the scroll uh, that couldn't be undone is that the lion gets to the throne by being a lamb. The lion wins by losing. The lion wins by being slaughtered. What John hears and what John sees are two very, very different things. In fact, what John sees is the greatest apocalypse in history. And ironically, uh, most people come today and read John's apocalypse, the revelation, and they still read that God is acting like a lion, overcoming like a lion, dominating like a lion. But that's not what the book of Revelation tells us. What the book of Revelation tells us is that God overcomes by being a slaughtered lamb. And more than that, There's two Greek words for lamb. Most of the time that the word lamb is used in Scripture, it's referring referring to a Greek word, uh, the Greek word amnos, which means an adult lamb. This is the word that uh, uh, John the Baptist uses when Jesus shows up at the beginning of his ministry that says, hey, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the word that's used, this adult lamb. That's not the word that's being used here in the book of Revelation. The word that's being used is arneon, which is the word for baby lamb or little lamb. So John not only sees a lamb, he sees a helpless little lamb. Mary's little lamb, if you will. (laughs) Mary's little lamb that has been slaughtered. They were expecting a lion, and they got a little slaughtered lamb. Bruce Metzer in his book on Revelation, says, instead of a ferocious lamb that hurts others, the Messiah is a sacrificial lamb that takes into himself the hurt of others. This is the apocalypse. And we still, 2,000 years later, even outside of the church, we still don't understand this. Um, I mean, look at the dominating images when you, when you want to talk about power and dominance and somebody being in control, what are the types of images and symbols and animals that get used? Well, we use the image of lion. Uh, I actually Google searched uh, teams, sports teams that are named the lions. Uh, and here's three that you will be uh, aware of. Uh, we have the BC Lions. Uh, we have, is that the Detroit Lions? Okay, I'm not much of a football guy, but uh, Detroit Lions. And we have the Ambrose Lions, who's a Calgary team. Uh, And so there's lots and lots of examples of sports teams being lions. Um, Why? Because lions are symbolically these overpowering, dominating uh, animals. And we use them to describe describe ourselves when we want to be dominating and overpowering and we want to win. 
So teams pick this as their mascot. We want to be winners, and so we pick lions. Uh, I also did a Google search to find out which teams chose the image of lamb. <laughs> Do you know what I found? I couldn't find one team in all of the world that had a mascot of a lamb. It is like the antithesis, the antithesis of winning. The closest I got was the St. Louis Rams. And, um, and ironically, what I found out was that uh, the St. Louis Rams, when opponents are wanting to make fun of their team because they're losing, they're called the St. Louis Lambs. It's what other teams use to insult their team. So not only are no teams used, uh, or are lambs not used to describe a winning culture or a team, they're used as an insult to teams when they're losing. And so this is the apocalypse, that what we think winning is, is actually losing. And what we think losing is, is actually winning. What John, what John hears and what John expects and what the world throughout history has expected and what you and I still expect 2,000 years later is that God's going to show up like a lion, that the winners do so by being a lion, by dominating, by overpowering, by using violence, by using force, by making their enemies submit. That's the picture of a lion. But what God says is that the center of the universe is a little slaughtered lamb who stands victorious. Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. Now this is a really bad translation because the word for in between actually means in the middle of. In the middle of the throne, which is in the middle of the worshiping circle of the four creatures, in the middle of the 24 elders and their thrones, in the middle of all creation, as, as we see in this chapter, the whole scope of everything worshiping the Almighty that's in the middle. And we learned earlier in Revelation chapter 4 that who was on the throne, the Almighty, it says, is sitting on the throne. And then John goes even further and it says, that the, slaughter, the little slaughtered lamb is standing in the middle of the throne. The Almighty, the Almighty God at the center of the universe, at the center of the Almighty God, is a slaughtered lamb. This is an apocalypse. This changes everything. And this lamb had seven horns and seven eyes. They're like, oh, here we go again, more symbols. Uh, but stay with me. You, you know how to read this now. Seven means what? Completeness and fullness. Horns is a, is a symbol of power. Eyes is a symbol of wisdom. And so at the center of the Almighty God is a little slaughtered lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. He is completely and fully powerful. He is completely and fully wise. We think think the way of the lamb is stupid. It's foolish. It's weak. 
At the center of the universe, we see a slaughtered lamb, completely powerful, completely wise. This is what the Apostle Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 23 when he says, we preach Christ crucified, the lamb, the little slaughtered lamb crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, what does it say? The power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. For all of history, people have been looking for God to show up like a lion, and then he shows up like a slaughtered lamb, and we look at it like, that looks foolish, that looks weak. But we see in the apocalypse, and what, we, what is testified about in, throughout the entire New Testament, is that the almighty God, the all-powerful God, who is fully powerful, reveals himself as a slaughtered lamb. The wise God who knows truth, who knows how to bring about his will, who knows how to bring about heaven coming to earth, reveals himself fully wise through his plan of coming like a slaughtered lamb. The greatest power in the universe is the weakness of sacrificial love, and the greatest wisdom of the universe is the foolishness of sacrificial love. And then he took the scroll, the four living beings and the uh, the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they held gold bowls and filled with uh, gold bowls, gold, held gold bowls. Um, This is only first service, Uh, which are the prayers of God's people. And then it goes on and says, and they sang a new song with these words, you are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals open for you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God and they will reign on the earth. This new song, they sing a new song. Why? Because there's a new revelation of who God is. There's a new apocalypse. There's a new understanding of who God is. And so they, they bring a new song of worship. And there's so many parts uh, um, to this song. Uh, But Jesus is worthy. He's the one who's worthy to open the scroll. No one in all of history could open it. He is worthy to bring about history to his conclusion. He is worthy to bring heaven to earth. He is worthy to fulfill the longing of every human heart. Jesus has ransomed people for God. Everybody say, for God. This is huge. And I don't know why, but many people preach that Jesus ransomed people from God. That's not what is happening. That's not the good news. Jesus has ransomed people for God. From the enemy of death, from the enemy of sin. He's ransomed them for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests. Now, priests, um, throughout the Old Testament, priests were people that represent uh, people to God. That was their role. They bring people to God. They pray for people. They they represent the, the nation and the people to God. That was the role of a priest. But the role of the priest was also to represent God to the people. And so this new song, this apocalypse, is that those who have been ransomed are actually a whole kingdom of priests. A whole, a whole group of people that were, have been called to pray for and represent people to God and represent God to people. 
And then it says, and they will reign on the earth. Again, um, if you have your little Bible journals, you'll notice there's a little note in your journal that says some earlier manuscripts read, they, they do reign on the earth. In fact, uh, it's most likely um, textual critics who study these manuscripts would say that the original writing of the apocalypse likely was not that they will reign on the earth, but the present tense that they do reign on the earth. And this is exactly what uh, even the Apostle Paul was saying in Ephesians. We said, and God raised us up, so that's past tense, it's already happened, with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So we put on these glasses. We expected a lion, but what we see is a lamb. And what we also see is that this has implications on who we are today, right now. That in the center of the universe is the Almighty, and in the center of the Almighty is a little slaughtered lamb who is completely wise and completely powerful, and he has a group of worshipers that he's called to be a kingdom of priests, and he's also called them to reign with him today. So, how do we reign with him? Well, really quickly, we witness about him because we are, uh, we are just worshipers. Jesus is the center of the universe. And so like Paul is, or what John is doing is, is opening uh, the curtain and saying that yeah, the center of the universe is actually Jesus, the slaughtered lamb. Uh, we too join uh, John in being witnesses to the truth who is not a concept but a person. We proclaim the apocalypse. It's not our job to proclaim Armageddon. And, um, and so we've got to rethink what apocalypse means. Our job is to, to proclaim that Jesus is in the center of the universe. We say to the world, look, things are not as they seem. There's a better story. There's a good news story. Let's join God in the story that he's writing. Uh, so we're witnesses. We pray. Uh, which is sometimes referred to as intercession. When there's a gap between the way things are and the way uh, on earth and the way things are in heaven, it's called intercession when we are praying for that gap to close. So we're praying in the gaps between what we know God wants and where things currently are. We're praying for others. We're praying for the kingdom of heaven to come to earth. Uh, and I don't know if you missed it, but just to go back to it in Revelation 5.8, we just read it, uh, that each one of the 24 elders had a harp and they had gold bowls. Of course you remember it because they couldn't say it. Uh, they, had, they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And we're going to come back to the prayers of God's people again as we go through the book of Revelation. But the prayers of God's people are piling up in these bowls in heaven and they are going to move the earth. That's what we see in Revelation. That our prayers matter in the course of history. They're piling up in heaven. And so how do we reign with them? We're witnesses to the truth. We pray in the gaps. We intercede in those gaps and then lastly, uh, which is not going to be your favorite, martyrdom. Like, Well, that's an awfully dark way to end, or sacrificial love. Jesus, and, and I think this is what we need to be critic, critically clear about, is that 
There wasn't one point in history where the lion became the lamb, and then after he became the lamb, he went back to heaven and became the lion. You guys know what I'm saying? Uh, That's often how we think about God, that God came from heaven to earth, he became lamb-like, and then he went back to being lion-like. At the center of history of the universe is the slain lamb. This is post-resurrection. Jesus isn't just the way. Jesus shows us the way. When Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me, he's inviting us to be the way of the lamb. And the Greek word for witness, the actual word that we translate as witness, is actually where we get the word martyr from. It's the Greek word martis. We adopted the Greek word and used it, we transliterated it into English, and we used the word martyr for those who are willing to die for their beliefs. Why did we adopt this Greek word? Because the most vivid witness of the truth is someone giving their lives for what they believe is true. People who live sacrificially, who live in sacrificial love, people who will give their lives for the sake of others, they're referred to as martyrs because they were witnessing to a truth that is so much bigger than themselves. And we can look throughout history that those people who tried to overcome like a lion never really ever overcame. But history is moved, history is shaken when people actually live out the way of the Lamb. We do not overcome like a lion, we overcome like a lamb. Evil is only overcome one way, and it's by the power of sacrificial goodness. Evil begets more evil. Violence begets more violence. Hatred begets more hatred. Evil is only defeated when it's matched by sacrificial goodness. Isn't this what Gandhi understood? Himself not identifying as a Christian, but he understood this part. And he said, I object to violence because when it appears to do good, the good is only temporary. The evil it does is permanent. And one of his most famous quotes, he's referring to Christians. He says, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Why? Because even our scriptures who tell us that God is like a lamb, a slaughtered little lamb, we still believe that God dominates like a lion. And Gandhi saw that that doesn't actually ever work. And of course, there's been followers of Jesus that have understood this throughout the course of history. Uh, One of... Our most maybe present-day examples is Martin Luther King uh, Jr., um, who moved history through preaching the gospel of the Lamb and inviting people to follow that way. He said, For through violence you may murder a murderer, but you can't murder murder. Through violence you may murder a liar, but you can't establish faith. Through violence you may murder a hater, but you can't murder hate. Through violence... But you can't murder hate through violence. Darkness cannot put out darkness. Only light could do that. And then one of Martin Luther's Jr.'s favorite, or King Jr.'s favorite, most famous speech was the I have the dream speech. And what is he describing in the I have the dream speech? Well, go read Revelation 21, 22. His I have the dream speech is a description of the new heavens and the new earth that Jesus gave in his apocalypse. And he's, he's inviting people, and he was calling people that this is a dream worth giving your life for. And it doesn't come about by dominance, by controlling, by violence, by the way of the lion. It only comes about by the way of the lamb. And when a people rise up that are willing to die for their beliefs, that are willing to sacrificially love others because they're so convinced of the truth and the beauty that at the center of the universe is a slain lamb, only then 
will we see history being shaken. Now, as we conclude, uh, I want us to recognize that in Revelation 4 and 5, there was uh, what we see is an unending scene of worship. That at the, the center of the universe is worship, all of creation worshiping the Almighty God who is a slaughtered and slain lamb. And every time we worship, we're actually joining a worship service that is already in progress. Right now, as we're in this room, at the center of the universe is this agape love, self-sacrificial God who is inviting us to worship Him. Uh, and when we worship God, when we worship anything, we become like what we worship. When we worship God and we understand that the God that we're worshiping reveals and moves history through His own sacrifice, we become more like Him. We become increasingly the people that forgive, increasingly the people that will choose to love somebody even when they're hurting us, increasingly the people that pray for our enemies, increasingly the people that refuse to take the way of the lion and choose the way of the lamb because we follow a Jesus who actually purchased our redemption through his blood by the way of the lamb. Now as we sing this next song, the song goes, Our God is a Lion roaring with power. Uh, and then it says, our God is a lamb, which we just talked about. Um, and you might think, well, this is a contradiction I'm singing now. Uh, but it's not, because the whole Bible actually talks about God being a lion. The expectation was that God was going to be a lion. And he did come in power. He did come and change the course of history. And he's going to come and bring history to its conclusion. It just so happens that the way that that power was brought about was not the way the lion brings it about, but by the way of the lamb. And so would you stand with me? Um, and we're going to sing this song as... Uh, it's... Worship is spiritual warfare. As we, as we understand that there's more than going on in the world, that there's a spiritual realm, we've been talking about this, that at the center of the universe, this is what's true. Uh, now, as the people of God, we get to stand in the gap and proclaim what is true. Um, and so I invite you to sing and to proclaim the truth and the reality that our God is actually, no matter what the chaos that's going on in the world, the evil that's going on in the world, that at the center of the universe is the Almighty God. And in the center of the Almighty God is a self-sacrificial God who gave himself up for the sake of the world. So God, we thank you for this apocalypse. We thank you that you are the lamb that gave your life and your blood so that we could be made new, so that we could be forgiven, that we could approach the throne of grace with confidence. Lord, I pray that uh, for those who have never approached your throne of grace this morning, that this might be the morning that they actually come to the throne because they're not afraid because they've seen the apocalypse that at the center is a forgiving God, at the center is a self-sacrificial God that gave himself for the sake of the world. So Lord, we come with confidence to your throne. Lord, we beg you that you would make us into your image. Lord, that you would show us the way that we try and use control and power to bring about change, and instead that we would be known as people of love, of people of forgiveness, of people of self-sacrifice. And yes, even if it means martyrdom, Lord, that we would lay down our very lives because we know that even at the end of this, end of our lives, is not the full story. 
And so we give our lives to the eternal picture of the new heaven and the new earth. We proclaim your resurrection and that even death itself cannot stop your kingdom from coming. In Jesus' name, amen. That's a good apocalypse, eh? That's good news. Um, yeah, but, uh, before I forget, if, if you wanted to join uh, Starting Point Week 4, uh, that's happening in Second Service. Um, and you just have, have to have it done Week 3 before that. Uh, so as we conclude, we'll have prayer teams available at the end. Uh, if you would like prayer for anything, we'd love to, to pray for you. Um, if you have never given your life to follow the Lamb, to follow Jesus, uh, you can always do that. Uh, you, you can do that outside of Sunday, uh, but maybe you feel uh, the Spirit of God tugging on your heart saying, come to the throne. Give your life to me. Receive the forgiveness that was bought by the slain lamb. Follow the way of the slain lamb. Um, if you're compelled uh, to take that step this morning, we'd love to pray with you uh, to do that. Um, you know, perhaps you're thinking, you know, martyrdom, you know, that's, uh, that's extreme. I'm not sure if I'm ever going to have to make that choice. And I don't know if you will, and I don't know if we will. Uh, but we know that there's brothers and sisters throughout the world that continue to have to make that choice every day. And in many ways, uh, we make little choices uh, that, that aren't life and death, but we make little choices every day whether to follow the way of the lamb or the lion. Uh, and so I don't know what that practically looks like for you and your relationships the way you run your business, uh, you know, the way you treat your parents or your children or your spouse or your co-workers. You know, do we move through this world looking to win like a lion or do we actually see the apocalypse that the way of power in the eyes of the world looks like the way of weakness? The way of strength actually is forgiveness. The way to bring change and transformation in the world that needs us is through self-sacrificial love. Will we follow Jesus in that way? So, Jesus, again, we just pray. Uh, we th- well, we thank you that your spirit lives in us. This is the spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit. So, Lord, we thank you that uh, you are teaching us and counseling us. This is what your word tells us. Uh, to live in a way that reflects the Lamb. But, Lord, we know that means... We, we know that that needs courage and so we pray Lord that you would give us courage uh, to do what appears as weakness but we know it takes immense strength to live in a way that models the one that we worship the one that we follow and we thank you at the center of the universe is the almighty and at the center of the almighty is a lamb and so we come to you in confidence Lord and we move in this world with courage Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, have a great week. Uh, we'll see you next week. Uh, there's also a Mexico meeting at 1 o'clock. That's the thing I needed to remind you of. <laughs>